Talk Connectables. Today we have Yüksel Demir, an architect without borders, an educator who builds visions rather than buildings or more than buildings. Welcome Yüksel Demir. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Today I want to start from your architectural career and academic pursuit and do you mind taking us to a short trip and then we will move on to your most recent research projects. Sure. I studied architecture in the uh, Faculty of Architecture in Istanbul Technical University and then continued with my master's and uh, PhD studies again at the same institute and became a research assistant in 89 and then couldn't leave since then. I'm, uh, I'm a complete inbred in uh, my institute and now I, I act as an associate professor again in the Department of Architecture. And uh, my concentrations are mainly on uh, the theory of architecture and uh, use of computation in architecture. Mm -hmm. And that's where I met you. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, <laughs> meet you. Yeah. And you are working on uh, the theory of architecture, but you, you are very insistent on the architectural practice as being research mm -hmm. practice. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, yeah, very well said, actually. My PhD subject was dealing with the uh, complexity of architecture or like multidimensional nature of architecture in unity. What I believe in is that this, of course, we need this Cartesian uh, structure for the analytical parts of science, let's say understanding, defining, and also classifying all those things made it possible for us to make it up to here. But in the same time, it had some uh, unwanted impact on us by sort of isolating layers or dimensions from each other. And this led into a kind of entropy that makes it almost impossible to perceive the whole. And uh, the distance between different fields of expertise or science, philosophy, art became even larger. And I think one of the biggest problems for us now is to reunite them somehow. So uh, in that sense, the relation between theory and practice is not like a connection it's like being one actually i mean imagine you cannot take one biological system out of your body without your bones without your uh, blood circulation without your muscles without your conscious you know like you can count all of them so they make sense only when they're uh, together and sound and working in, in, in healthy condition and uh, together in unity so Theory and practice are not things that has to be related to each other. They are things that, that shouldn't be considered separate. So theoretically, or I, maybe more precisely, ideologically, that's my standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it seems like architects already gave the research and development part of their profession to engineers. And they're not really acting like engineers, but maybe uh, a century ago, uh, I don't know when it started, but before then uh, we were more responsible about the buildings that we were creating, right? Or the, mm -hmm. the um, spaces mm -hmm. that we were creating. 
Actually, this is a very good point uh, you raised. Uh, now, my one of uh, most recent concerns and the research subject is closely related with this question. I believe, and there are some others like me who believe in this, one of them was Le Corbusier in the beginning of the century while he was writing towards a new architecture book. He was complaining about this, you know, a century ago, and uh, that we were stuck in a paradigm that is not anymore uh, functioning. And because of this stripping out of other disciplines or like giving birth to other disciplines from architecture. I mean, uh, if you remember our first written text about these subjects uh, by Vitruvius, when, when you read the, uh, the part about the duties of architects, anything that you can describe here as a sort of engineering was considered within architecture. So architecture actually, according to that written text, because there are some different points of views now because of the statico mainly, but historically and based on some evidences, uh, we know that actually all other disciplines that, were, that are now independent disciplines were once included in the architecture. So that gave a huge responsibility to the architect. Is it possible to keep it like this? No. But of course, we're not capable of dealing with that much, that big amount of information and data, even knowledge. But in the same time, this, this connection and also not having a good system to, uh, to, to make them work together harmoniously to have that uh, control over the, uh, the whole, ended up with, a, with one really important problem, which is lack of research and development. Because the nature of our profession forces us, not only us as architects, but all the, all the roles, all the actors in this process, to act uh, impulsively and instantly, rather than it is in like industrial product design, because you have much planning, you know, uh, research and development, because you can produce a mass amount of product. So you can have this time to get prepared, even, even to launch the product, you know. Uh, we have lots of studies. But for us, when there's a need, when there's a budget, there's no time. And then the client demands to have the building uh, yesterday, you know, when they have the decision, not even tomorrow. So there's no time for research and development. and, and so the architect has and to for solve experimentation. The and for Sorry? experimentation. Exactly. And, and it is not possible to reserve an adequate uh, amount of or share of R&D budget in, in, in such a short time and, and just for a singular building. So almost 99% of the building, there are some exceptions, but 99% of the buildings we can say all around the world are, are designed and built this way. I have a, the, um, actually a case which we could have turned this reverse, the, the Toki case, the mass housing agency of Turkey. If you would have planned the, ahead, you know, like the number of the buildings we're going to build, the locations, and, and put a time reserve like five, ten percent of, of all our resources for R&D, we might have kind of uh, tried, you know, uh, to, to, to change this uh, facet circuit and maybe have some better results and more sustainable and, and also could help us actually investigate 
whether we can do this for other cases also. And, and this is one of the most recent concerns and research topics for me too. So some of the recent projects that I'm involved in are closely related to this, for example, planning R&D design and production phase of Turkish Antarctic Research Station, mm-hmm. which I act as the coordinator for, uh, was actually inspired by by this problem when I was asked to design a building in Turkey to have a kind of display for Antarctica in it. I, I tried to, uh, I actually managed to uh, try to convince my client to actually build uh, a station in Antarctica and, and we established a research station, a research institute, sorry, first in Istanbul Technical University and then we managed to get the support from the government and now the process is ongoing. and. One of the biggest outcome or benefit that I'm expecting from this experience is that in this particular and and, uh, special uh, project, uh, we might be able to explore this subject or uh, try to find some answers for this, this basic question of like how we can change the paradigm that we stuck in for almost 2,000, even more than 2,000 years uh, as architects and uh, try to use all the potential that we have scientifically, theoretically to uh, improve the quality of our, of our professional act. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the, the project in Mardin as the precedent of this uh, Antarctic project, right? Exactly. So do you mind going to mm-hmm. that one? And then sure. we can come back to Antarctica. Project. Sure, sure. I have to mention the name of my studio, architectural design studio first. It is architecture, nature, culture. And mm. since more than a decade, the name of the studio is this. And my research uh, that I'm doing with my uh, master and PhD students as, as well is mainly you know revolving around this subject. The, the reason why I'm dealing with computation is also related with that, with, with the main question of how can we enable the architect to have full control over all the dimensions uh, of architecture, which, which is a very difficult task without the help of, you know, actually skill i mean the technology that we have mm-hmm. in this age uh, information and communication technology um, so we need that when i i'm also from mardin and i was invited uh, to to help uh, the, to take part in the development process of a strategic plan for the whole province of Mardin with the governor's office and two foundations uh, mariam and Chekil. and there i had the chance it was this was 2004 I had the chance to get to know the potentials and problems together of nine sub-provinces or towns of Mardin, also the, the, the main town center. And there, there was also an attempt to establish a university at that time. And the team that I was with, we were in a workshop at the same time. I combined two things. We witnessed that opportunity there, that a research institute that can bridge the academy or the research part to society, but an acting one, not a platonic one that, that watches from outside, which is taking part in life with some uh, real actions, uh, small, light, but capable of doing things, using, again, experts that are also competent and able to, to serve the society in the best possible way. So I suggested both the authorities and the public, the audience, 
they had a meeting, big, let's say, meeting to discuss uh, both the strategic plan and also the university thing came out at that meeting. It was like a forum. And when I said, like, it's not possible to, to build in such a short time a university or some short-term uh, expectations from a university, you know, helping the local economy, you know, renting houses, some small commercial activities, etc. I said, it would be better to have a kind of flirt stage, you know, uh, between the researchers and the society. So they get to get all the place, the margin in this case they get to know each other because it's a very attractive uh, location, as you also know. And, and it has lots of cases that attracts researchers coming not only from science part, also from the, uh, the art part as well. So uh, we, we shouldn't, I said, we shouldn't be limiting it into any specific fields, but an open platform that can provide a kind of access, a kind of protocol, like USB protocol, you know, like, when you come to the city uh, as a researcher, as an artist, and you don't know how to connect uh, with the city and where to get some information or where to solve some logistical problems, etc. So this could be like the first landing page as, as we use mm -hmm. in web pages, the first door that you're going to knock. And we should be ready waiting for these demands and we should be facilitating any, uh, let's say, infrastructural uh, possibilities, logistical possibilities or devices, plus an archive uh, about the city and also protocols, like how you can work with the city. And this should be a very light, let's say, economical to run facility. And my institute, uh, Istanbul Technical University, was more than happy to take care of the academic part and the, the municipality and the, the uh, governorate also were happy to take part in the local part uh, together with some, let's say, non-governmental organizations. And uh, we signed the protocol, we established it in, first in 2005 as a center, then it became a research and development center. And actually we worked on several real issues or real uh, problems, projects of Martin. I may count could some you, of them. Could you give some examples? Of course. For example, for more than a century, they had the problem of erosion in the, uh, in the castle uh, on top of the city. The, the city was established on the hills of, uh, of a mountain where we have a, an ancient castle on top and there were rocks coming down, more, I mean, bigger than buses and then really creating huge danger for the residents living on the hills of the, uh, of the castle. So uh, we have, we, we, sort of managed to, to initiate a kind of uh, first research and then a real project and there was a bit and so and, and a project was created to uh, kind of solve this problem. The work is still going on, it's, it's a huge project. Another one was like uh, one of the missions when we established Mardit was to help the, to support the process of the establishment of the university. And so they asked us to uh, plan the university campus and then design, uh, develop a design concept for architecture and urban design part phases as well. So we did that too. And uh, so it was possible to have the students in, in much shorter time than any other cities that established universities at the same time because there was a law in 2007 where 15 universities were established in the same time in different parts of Anatolia 
uh, I assume Mardin was one of the fastest to have its campus kind of function. In terms of regulations or people were ready to come together? Yeah, both buildings. Like in 2009-10, we started to see the, the first uh, buildings on site, actually. Mm. I guess now it's around 10, 2010. And uh, this was a very participatory process in the same time. We did share all our thoughts, ideas, proposals in an open meeting with the whole public and all authorities, politicians. And, and we asked for their blessings, actually, and we, we, have, we had a kind of acceptance and that's how we, we kind of proceeded with the process. And also they asked us to deal with the um, main public spaces of Mardin, Jumuriyet Square and the main entrances, the Arbakır Kapı and Savur Kapı. And um, it's a loop, basically, you know, the, the traffic in Mardin, car traffic takes place mostly in one street that loops in the middle and the edge lower edge of the city so we do developed also a project for that uh, that project also was introduced to european funds and we managed to bring nine million euros fund also to the city mm-hmm. to help for the, for the development of those urban spaces for cultural tourism and uh, similar tasks. I mean, these are some of the things. Of course, there are other things. Many educational projects took place. I guess most of our professors of that time, and except one department, all four departments, and most of our students, including undergrad and grad students, had the chance to work in mind also. We used it also, you know, kind of, we kind of integrated both uh, theory practice, education, life, profession mm-hmm. education so that was a kind of good exercise to deal also or or to search for some questions of some ba- as for answer for some basic questions that we raised uh, in this mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. yeah so when we say research and development for architecture for creating space what are the means of the the feedback that we get from the experimentation which is the actually the practice is mm-hmm. the experimentation uh, or the laboratory of the science uh, of architecture mm-hmm. and as far as I can see. So what are the means that we need to actually uh, evaluate and then feedback into the process? Actually, uh, maybe I have to take it a little bit from a wider perspective, not specifically answer this question. The research and development can be understood in in many ways uh, regarding uh, the subject that we're dealing with. But I'd like to concentrate on some of the problems that I observe in our approach, in the practice. Because of the entropy of, of specializations in, in architecture, I'm afraid uh, the part that we're left with is dealing with morphology and you know, other shapes. I'm really sorry to say this, uh, no offense to all architects, but I'm sure there are many who doesn't perceive architecture as this. But what I observe is that the majority of our work is like defining shapes, you know, either for spaces or for for uh, for like the skin or the body of the building. But architecture, when it, I mean, a build, let's say we, we're talking about a building uh, as subject of an, of an architectural job. It takes many experts and many hands, actually, many actors to design it, to plan it, to design it, to build it. But you pursue it as once, at once, and as one. So all these dimensions interact with each other, and and we have a, we have again one performance. When when you use a space, whether it's 
like climatization issues or acoustical issues or illumination or let's say the feeling that you have in that space, whatever, you know, whatever you can have. All of them are taking place in the same time. But if you're not able to control all these parameters while you design, some of the outcomes are coincidences or like whatever, whatever you can achieve. I believe we should have a better control on the end product. So I give an example to some of my colleagues when we discuss this. I say most of us are not happy with some critiques that are the, the roofs of our buildings leak still. And when we are criticized about this, we say, oh, look at the falling water house that also leaks, you know, but it's a piece of art and forgetting like when that was built at the same time. And when they say that, what I say is actually, imagine that you're designing for, for, a, for an aerospace engineer that, that designs and builds flying machines like airplanes or <laughs> spaceships or whatever. Oh, let's say airplane. <laughs> Listen, let's say an airplane. And your client is an aerospace engineer and you build a house and your roof leaks. And you go and say, this is normal to that person who's capable of developing a product that can fly approximately 1,000 kilometers an hour and there is no leak. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, this is something we should be honest to ourselves and deal with. Uh, it's not only about technical aspects. If you just look at your smartphone, what, what a small uh, rectangular box prism is capable of doing. There is nothing fancy about their shape. Almost all the brands look the same now. When you, when you look to all the airplanes in an airport, can you tell which one is which brand? No. <laughs> They're a little bit smaller and bigger, you know, like almost. So uh, while we were making our research for Antarct Antarctic research stations, we used this reverse engineering approach and uh, looking at the, at, at the state-of-the-art stations and the mentality, the paradigm that they did use to design and build those stations were completely different than how we design and build conventional buildings at this part of the world. They were more close to how aerospace engineers work, much more close to that. Mm -hmm. And in functional sense? In all case, in all senses. I mean, I don't mean to uh, uh, disrespect, let's say, the morphological part. What I believe is, you know, you know, those old sayings like form follows function. I believe form is the function. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at biological uh, forms, yeah. you'll see that. I mean, eyes are not that beautiful so we can write poems for them or we mm -hmm. can fall in love with them. That's mm -hmm. the consequence of that. But they're like that because of their function. So yeah. uh, it's the same thing for anything that you design, actually. Aesthetic is an inevitable uh, or inseparable part of your design, of course, but it's not the only one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we are considering, the reason I asked about the function, whether you were meaning the function of the building or whatever product, uh, is that I believe that we learn about neuroscience. Uh, definitely. In, in architectural education. Definitely, definitely. And we need to understand the occupant fairly enough to yeah. make sure that there is an optimum happiness or at least a stable psychology mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. enabled within that 
space that we are creating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And other issues that we, I don't know how we can limit the amount of knowledge that we need to build as architects and mm -hmm. how that could function. I mean, should we know all of this, the sciences that are uh, correlated with the humans and space? Or how could we systemize this knowledge and how, how yeah. can we turn that into practice? Yeah. I can extend this to any possible scientific subject, including neuroscience. I mean, AI, machine learning, I don't know, I mean, um, cognitive science, uh, I mean, related subjects, of course, but, but anything, biology, uh, bioengineering anything by the way we also have a course uh, in the undergrad in bioengineering department with two of my colleagues Osash Lekol and Aynur Karakash both artists uh, Oz also a philosopher and uh, Aynur is a ceramic artist and we try to uh, connect the engineering students bioengineering students with the part uh, most engineering schools think have nothing to do with engineering mm -hmm. such as art philosophy, design, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, basic sciences and uh, engineering concept. So, uh, and then the, uh, the name of the course is Art of Engineering. So the, the thing is, we shouldn't be acting on behalf of any expert that we need to involve in our studies. We should be open, openly inviting them with their knowledge, you know, to be a part of our process. Mm -hmm. Collaboration. Collaboration. That, that, is, that is the best way. That is the best way. Not acting on behalf or trying to learn, half learn during our grads, schools, a bit of this and a bit of that. Yeah, this, this creates a kind of interface expert, which I call myself also in the field of computation. I don't consider myself as, an, as a computation expert, but... I can act as an interface, let's say, actor that can link computation field to the field of architecture and translate the needs, problems and potentials of both sides to each other. So now I'm in the steering committee of a PhD study about neuro using neuroscience in architecture. And I'm, I connected them with the AI center of our university that, that is recently established so they can collaborate in that sense because we need to have real experts taking their parts and and we shouldn't be we shouldn't be fighting it too complicated to involve more people it's it's difficult to manage we escape most of the time from that difficulty but i think that's why we fail <laughs> that's why we fail so do you call no, us a failure <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's a, that would be really heavy i mean i'm proud of my profession at the same time but I'm, I'm harsh in, in, in making self-critics so we can improve our profession. Our, I mean, our education gives us a unique ability of perceiving these things. This is a huge advantage compared to some other education, university education styles. That's how I, uh, we, we could be aware of these things and, and, and work on them. But we are not that powerful to change the paradigm that we complain about. So uh, that I complain about. So to change the paradigm, we need to collaborate mm -hmm. with and all the shareholders. How can we measure this failure, let's say? Not, uh, I mean, it's, it's not a kind of general failure. I don't like generalizations. Uh, I, 
I mean, I'm sorry if I meant it in a wrong way. Uh, but the thing is, we know that we can't take care of everything, right? Mm -hmm. What is the ratio? What is the amount? You need to have a scientific study for that. I can't tell the, the, the figures for that. But I'm sure as not being all the other experts at the same time as being an architect. So anything that I'm not, you know, and if, if, I, if I'm not able, if I don't have the budget to involve in my design process, should be a coincidence if it's not a failure, if I succeed mm -hmm. or the, the outcome. So such a complex, let's say, task, but only one or a few fields, including some engineering fields that, that helps us and some administrative, let's say, fields. I don't think we're capable of taking into consideration all the dimensions. So any dimension that is not being studied well should be failure or, as I said, a coincidental, uh, out, should have a coincidental outcome. Yeah. You just previously mentioned rocket science. Architecture should, uh, the, the process should resemble the rocket science and it shouldn't leak in space. Yeah, yeah. that was the, the example I gave actually. Uh, like, uh, we cannot produce excuses for our failures. We should solve that, the problems. So, yeah. because we know, you know, there is a way. I asked the question to my students, second year students, because we work on this Antarctic research station with them. I, because I was trying to convince them, you know, to, to, to change the, the paradigm or, or to, uh, to paradigm of thinking uh, in the studio, uh, involving more knowledge, science, information, rather than their subjective uh, opinions, ideas, and shapes only, you know, defining shapes only. And then I asked them, would you like to go to space with a rocket that is designed the way you design now? They said, no. <laughs> no, God, no. <laughs> but do you remember that there were people for the first time who went to space, you know, decades ago, almost a half century ago, using, of course, the design, let's say, or the, the paradigm that I'm trying to introduce to you. So maybe in this way, you can understand how this thing is actually vital. Vital when I mean literally vital, because... Uh, you put your life in there. Actually. Yeah, yeah. We came back to your Antarctica experience here between mm -hmm. life and death, and yeah. th that's where the, the coldest, windiest, and the driest place yeah. on Earth. Not the part that we went, because we were in the Antarctic Peninsula only to the sixty-something parallel. I don't remember exactly now, and uh, it was the end of summer, Austral summer, and the maybe lowest temperature we got was like 20, minus 20 degrees Celsius. But in the center of, of, the, of the continent, close to the pole, you can find like 89, minus 89. And it's a harsh climate. They say like closest environment to Mars uh, in, 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 uh, on Earth. Yeah, very, very harsh environment. Strong winds such as 300 kilometers an hour, yeah. And is, is there anything that you remember as a, a shock for you that you weren't expecting in mm -hmm. that expedition? 
Yeah, the biggest shock was uh, realization of the impact of humankind on this part of the world. Like how we destroyed this part of the world and what would, ha what would happen if uh, humankind wouldn't exist. How beautiful <laughs> would have been the whole world. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to say this, but we're like a plague, um, as the agents from the Matrix say. Like you are the problem in this world. <laughs> Yeah, seeing, you know, the nature untouched since millions of years. And, uh, and, and, and so amazing. And maybe the biggest shock was that. And I believe we should have intellectuals going there, like artists and philosophers, just to experience this and then express what I felt in the, in the most beautiful and intense way. So we can share this message with those who are not able to go there. Mm, yeah, but do we have safe vehicles? Of course, I mean, of course, but as I said, we should be there, but we shouldn't be heavily there. Our existence should be balanced a little bit in a careful way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what is the next step for your Antarctic mission? Now we're working on, we are on the R&D phase for the uh, station. But in the same time, uh, every year in summertime, that's summertime of Antarctica, we have an expedition, scientific expedition. We finished the third one recently, one month ago, uh, more than one month ago, let's say. And we're planning the uh, fourth one. And we have a camp now made of three containers that will help us, you know, measuring some meteorological phenomena and, and collecting data. So that can help us for the design of, of, the, of the real station. And I think this will be, as, as long as we have the possibility and the resources, this will be a, a, an ongoing project as, as the other nations. So why is it important to be there? I call it the fuse of the world. And I'd like to explain it with an anecdote from Claude Lorius, a respectful French scientist who was given a glass of drink with some aged ice in it. And when he observes the, the, the air coming out of the melting ice and the, sparks, the spark of idea comes to his mind that he can actually measure the amount of gas in the atmosphere in different time periods because in each layer you have a different time zone in the ice mm -hmm. and so that's how actually we started to learn more about the correlation between the human activity and the uh, climate change and some international treaties were signed to to save the uh, future of the world although there are some threats by some countries to finish this process but if they didn't, of those factual scientists such as Claude Loris didn't work there since decades, even centuries, a century, more than a century, probably we would have a harder time now living. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we owe this to them. I mean, we owe a big thank to all those scientists who sacrifice their health, parts of their body, even their lives there exploring what's going on there and actually we owe our present present day to them and probably uh, the future residents of the world will owe their lives to those who conduct the research at the present time so it, it's a must yeah so it keeps a very ancient knowledge there the antarctica and yeah 
we need to look for that knowledge. Also, and also, uh, we, we have to take care of Antarctica to keep it as it is. We have to avoid uh, this fast meltdown process that is accelerated than the ratio that we estimated some time ago. And we know that if, the, if all ice on Antarctica melts, whole oceans, uh, seas uh, around the world might rise between 70 and 100 meters. And you wouldn't like to imagine what's, what can happen there, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and not many people care about this, as we can yeah, see. Because maybe they don't know, because I didn't know as well. Because I, mm -hmm. I was approached as an architect to design a building that has a display within the building about Antarctica. And they had to give me a brief about Antarctica, because Antarctica until that time was something that I would see in documentary channels and watch beautiful animals and beautiful sceneries, but didn't know these facts so, uh, until that time. So we, sh we need to create an awareness about that. So maybe one of the uh, biggest mission is that to create that awareness so people first can understand what the scientists or researchers uh, were capable of achieving uh, as knowledge from there and then look at what we do now and what we did to this part of the world and maybe change our attitude a little bit mm -hmm. also for this yeah. part of the world yeah yeah so <clears throat> i have a couple of more questions when you're dealing with all the these surrounding disciplines i'm sure you have a view of uh, what creativity is and where it stands Mm -hmm. in, in architecture or any mm -hmm. profession that we, we can mm -hmm. think of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not an expert about creativity and uh, I don't know what creativity is, by the way. I, I subscribe to, to the opinion, to op the opinion uh, that was uh, well expressed by Aziz Sanjar, our Nobel laureate. He says, more than creativity or talent, there is work. You need to work, you need to study, you need to, uh, to learn. I think that's why research is important for architecture, because as much you research, as much you learn, probably what is being called creativity takes place or like uh, becomes a reality. More than creativity, I think curiosity is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I was gonna ask you whether you have a message for our listeners before we start wrapping up and th uh, this is uh, actually a good beginning for this message yeah uh, actually maybe the last sentence could more than a message i could also uh, i could uh, manifest how i work more than i mean i don't feel myself comfortable saying to people i suggest having advices like a wise man i'm not i became a naive curious researcher seriously who thinks is illiterate and never satisfied with asking questions learning more and, and investigating making it make, make it researching all the time because each question is bringing like a chain reaction another question more than an answer and it's a continuous reaction chain reaction so i think i sh i should continue doing that because so far what i got out of this uh, is working yeah 
it, yeah. it gives the sense that you actually have the unease that leads to curiosity. Does it start with curiosity or it, with une the, the unease that you have and you, you want to look for? Um, That's a, a neuroscientific uh, question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. Or a cognitive question. I don't know why it's like that. But since I was a child, uh, people were complaining about me asking too many questions. So <laughs> I, I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, you ask too many questions. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I was. But I, but I have too many questions. I don't I know. I was why. banned too. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know why. <laughs> okay, we need to find out. <laughs> yeah, I, think, uh, okay. I hope so. Thanks. Well, such a humble person you are and I'm sure there are people who would like to reach you and maybe ask questions of uh, course anytime anybody sure how can they reach you maybe I don't know if this is going to be um, published somewhere we can put the email or social media it's all mm -hmm. with my name Yüksel Demir at Yüksel Demir they have everything and and in Google I think they can they can find I don't know what else I can say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Yusuf Hocam, thank you very much. That This Thanks was a great me. chat. And, um, well, me too. Thank you very much. I hope to talk to you again in another episode. Always. With pleasure, Lale. Thank you very much. <laughs>